Beloved, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn in them to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, uh, be one of our primary texts for this morning. And if you also want to flip a few more pages to the right to, uh, or to the left, whichever direction, uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians, that's to your left, chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, those are going to be the, the two passages of Scripture that we settle in to this morning. And before we do that, let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are visiting with us at ARC. We're glad that you're here. Can't think of any place we'd rather you be than with us as we praise God together and uh, as we seek to grow in the grace of Christ together. Uh, make yourselves right at home. We're a casual bunch. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel seriously. And we do pray that you're encouraged in the gospel this morning. If you're with us for the first time, whether online or here in the uh, auditorium with us, you have parachuted into the fourth of a four-part series that we have called Pastors and People. If you've been with us these last few weeks, you know that we have been, as a church, sort of taking this year, 2022, to kind of do a little bit of a reset, to go back to our fundamentals, our sort of foundational um, objectives and foundational beliefs as a church, in large part because the last two years has been sort of a, a scattering period, hasn't it? The pandemic has, first of all, sent us all to our rooms uh, and said, go sit there for a while, be separated from everybody, and uh, then sort of work this way into sort of really transforming life as we have known it. So that many of the things that we took for granted, like gathering together on a Sunday morning, were actually things that were, for long periods of time, suspended. And we have accommodated ourselves to this reality with the use of technology and other things. And so um, we have been live streaming services and attempting to get some sense of gathering through that medium. But that's not the same as being together. And what were meant to be temporary measures are not to be sort of engaged in as if they're now permanent measures, right? So we've been at this sort of risk of having what we have known to be the regular rhythms of our spiritual lives really interrupted and in some ways distorted. And we have perhaps forgotten some important fundamental things. And so this year we have been, um, we have set this year aside, the pulpit ministry at least, to go back to those fundamentals. We began as we normally do in the new year with our series on our five M's. Those are our sort of core objectives as a church. Pastor Dennis did a wonderful job of, job of leading us through those five M's. Those are spread the message of the gospel to show mercy to our neighbors, to seek to multiply, uh, that is to train leaders and plant churches, to shepherd one another to maturity, and to send missionaries to the end of the earth. And so as a church, those are our sort of five major objectives, and we walk through those each year to give a, a look at how we're doing. Now we're in the middle of a series that's meant to look at sort of fundamentally, what is the relationship between pastors and people? Because not only has the pandemic interrupted rhythms, it's also interrupted relationships, hasn't it? Friendships have been scattered. Families have been scattered. There's been significant loss in friendships and families. Um, and even something that's meant to be for our spiritual good, like the relationship between pastors and people, has been affected. 
And so we wanted to spend these four weeks thinking about what this relationship should be, not so much in terms of the job description of pastors or the job description of the people, but to think more about the spiritual dynamic that should be happening between pastors and people. What what is meant to be going on by God's design between us as we live for Christ and as we live for his glory? What things should we be expecting? And we in the first three sermons have said this, that pastors work together with their people for the people's joy. They stand firm in the faith. So there's a partnership here for joy, for the church's joy in Christ. Secondly, we said this, that that pastors are meant to set an example of following Jesus that the people can see and follow. We were looking at texts like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, and 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, Hebrews 13 and 7. And so we talked there about the, the sort of center of this relationship being kind of a modeling relationship. And then we thought last week about this, that pastors care for the souls of the people, lead the people, while the people honor their leaders and submit to their leaders. And that's both for the joy of the pastors and for the advantage of the people. We saw that in Hebrews 13, 17. So at the heart of this relationship is soul care. Pastors care for the souls of the people. The people receive that care. And when that's happening, there's joy in the pastorate and advantage or blessing to the people. Now, where is all of this going? Well, each of those first three sermons focus on the pastor-people relationship on earth, in time, as it were. The pastor-people relationship is carried out in time on earth, but its its ultimate vision isn't an earthbound one. Its ultimate vision is a vision of eternity with Jesus. So the vision we're sketching is of a spiritual relationship that aims for joy now and Jesus forever. That's what we're after. We want to consider two passages this morning that help us to see the sort of ultimate or the eternal outcome uh, that we're looking for. Again, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. And we want to hang our thoughts on three observations this morning, three brief points this morning. Number one, pastors proclaim. So in this relationship, part of what's happening is pastors are proclaiming. Number two, pastors betrothed. Pastors betrothed. We see that first point in Colossians 1. We'll see that second point in 2 Corinthians 11. And number three, in both of these texts, we'll see that the people are presented. The people are presented. Pastors proclaim pastors uh, betrothed so that the people are presented to Christ. Let's pray together again. Father, we beg you to help us this morning. Help us amidst the distraction and the clamor of the world and our own hearts to push through to hear from you. We beg of you, Lord, to give us a sense of your presence with us this morning. To know something of your divine touch. To be stirred, Lord, with your 
affections, to be stirred with the passions that you are passionate about. We beg of you this morning to change us, to mold us by some degree into the image and the likeness of Christ. We ask you, O Lord, to place our hope in heaven beyond the reach of this world. Protect it there. We pray, O Lord, give us more of yourself this morning that we might know you better and love you more than anything else we know and love in all the world. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing to observe in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, is that pastors proclaim in this relationship. See there, those two verses. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, this main point, or point number one, comes from those first three letters there. Him we proclaim. This is Paul's description of his own apostolic ministry, and the apostles' ministry is the pattern for the pastoral ministry. Now, it's an interesting order of, the, of words there. He didn't say, we proclaim him. He says, him we proclaim. And in the original Greek, when you wanted to emphasize something, one of the ways you did that was to put the thing of emphasis in the beginning of the sentence. That's why it's structured that way. Him we proclaim, meaning Jesus is the substance and the center of all of the preaching of the apostles and of the pastors. And what we center on in the proclamation of God's word is the Son of God. We're not centering on the wisdom of men. We're not centering on current events, though we may speak into those things. We're not centering even on our felt needs. Him, the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, the one crucified for us and buried and resurrected three days later, the one who's coming again in his glory, it is him we proclaim. Because it's him we need to be constantly looking to, reoriented toward. What happens in this relationship, if it's healthy, is you come here having swam through a sea of negativity, having swam through a sea of stress and distress, having encountered all kinds of struggles in, in almost every quarter of your life, and by God's grace, one of your pastors gets you to look up from that and to see Jesus, to see the one who loves your soul, who gave himself for you. And it's coming again to gather you. A good pastor proclaims him. That's our task. The work of proclaiming, notice in verse 28, should be done in a certain way. There is warning everyone and there is teaching everyone. With warning, there is a responsibility to, to preach the truth of God's judgment. To preach the truth about sin. The, the preach the truth about the, the dangers of the world and the flesh and the devil. Don't you know that Jesus comes with a warning sign? It's as if it were in the line the witch in the wardrobe when early in the series, uh, little Lucy or one of the kids, they come into Narnia and, and, and I think it's Mr. Beaver who's telling him about Aslan. He tells him that there's a lion and 
Lucy has the wrong idea that maybe it's like a plush toy, he's a cuddly or something. And, and Mr. Beaver says, whoa, 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 no, he's not safe. He's a lion. He's a king. He's the greatest beast in Narnia. Well, you know, C.S. Lewis was writing imaginatively about Christ. And sometimes we're overly familiar with Jesus. And sometimes we assume that Jesus cosigns whatever it is that's going on in our lives and that we're interested in. And yet, here, Paul says, when we proclaim Jesus, we also proclaim warnings. Because he's not safe. Not safe in the, in the face of sin and wickedness and rebellion. I'm not going to trifle with that. And that's why if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, it, it may seem kind of rude to you that, that Christians will sometimes point out your sin or try and talk with you about choices that you're making and ways that you're living that, that the Bible disapproves of. And, and, and that may feel intrusive to you, but I, I want you to understand it from the Bible's perspective. Those warnings, giving in love, I hope, sometimes Christians can be rude, I'm sorry for that. But, but I hope, given in love and with great patience, I hope you'll understand that the reason we give those warnings is because there really is something dangerous ahead, that God's judgment is serious. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. We, we don't want that for you. We want you to hear the warnings to turn away from the road that leads to destruction and to turn into the way that leads to life. And so him we proclaim warning everyone, but not just warning. Notice also teaching everyone. A teaching is that systematic, step-by-step -step sort of instruction in Christian belief and Christian behavior. Beloved, when we become Christians, we don't know how to live as Christians. You don't get that by osmosis. It doesn't come sort of just miraculously. It doesn't even come by sitting in church pews decade after decade. I know some Christians who have been Christians for decades, but who are in fact babes in Christ because they've not been instructed. They've not been taught. They've not had the scriptures open line upon line, precept upon precept, and applied to their lives and taught how to do that for themselves. And yet that's what, we, that's what we want. That's what we're called to. Him we proclaim teaching everyone, systematically instructing everyone in how to live and how to believe as a Christian. And notice this. This is to go to everyone. This is not secret knowledge for a select few. And this is to go to everyone, the whole church. Now, ask yourself the question, how is it that Paul expects of himself to teach everyone or to warn everyone uh, about Christ? Well, he's probably not doing that one-on-one, -on -one, is he? He's probably not doing that, I get coffee with you in the morning and lunch with you in the afternoon. You guys come by for dinner. That's great ministry. But it's probably not going to get to everyone, is it? I think Paul probably has in mind here the assembly of God's people, the gathering of God's people. Here is where we have the best opportunity together to hear the whole counsel of God, each one of us to be instructed in the truth. And this is why the neglecting of gathering is so detrimental to your spirit. It's why it's so detrimental to your soul. If you're not regularly gathering with God's people under God's word, that means your, your, your diet is hit or miss. 
It's, it's bits and pieces, kibbles and bits probably. Right? It, it means you're going to have significant holes in your instruction, and you're going to go a week or two not having been warned graciously from God's Word. How many of us really need to spend a week or two without the warning of God's Word? How many of us are so sufficiently sanctified that we don't need to hear, wait a minute? And how many of us are so sufficiently instructed in God's Word that we can, we can leave off hearing His Word hearing Christ proclaimed for any period of time without it resulting in the cooling of our souls. No, beloved. In this relationship, the most central thing we do is gather ourselves together to hear someone say to us, thus saith the Lord. Because we need to hear what thus saith the Lord. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. And that word gets declared to us. Him we proclaim each Lord's Day as we gather and someone bellows out the great word of God. I'm trying to impress upon us the fact that we need this. This is not optional. This is not optional. We need the word of God lest we die. as we shrivel and turn to dust. And don't we sometimes feel sort of in our soul, the soul begging for the word, fighting against the flesh, trying to get us to turn to the Bible rather than turn on the television? Don't we sometimes hear the still, small voice just saying to us, no, go get the book. Don't turn on the app. Go get the book. It's because we need it. And God has put his spirit in us to cry out for it. And at the heart of this relationship is this reminder, this, this proclamation of him that we need it. And so the question becomes, how committed are we to hearing, believing, and applying the proclamation of Jesus Christ in our lives? Is that a commitment for us? Is that central to our relationship? That we give ear to the word of God. And that we do this, notice what the text says, verse 28, with all wisdom. So this is a wonderfully gracious way of the Bible reminding Pastor T that he is insufficient for this task because I don't have all wisdom. And yet, and yet that's what we are expending our energy to do as pastors, to think about how with wisdom to warn to people, with wisdom to teach to people, with God's divine insight to bring to you things old and new that actually stir and benefit your soul. And I trust you, you, you recognize that it means, this means too that, that you should come to the word with all wisdom, bringing to the word the wisdom that God gives you through the word, through prior sermons, through your fellowship in small groups, that you should come to the word alert and active, prayerful, eager in faith. For God speaks yet today through his word. And that all who have ears to hear, hear him. 
So the first thing that we do in this relationship is we proclaim. Now, notice secondly, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians 11, 2, that pastors also betroth. We betroth. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is Apostle Paul speaking again, but now to the church in Corinth. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So now Paul has moved from the act of proclamation to something here called betrothal. Now, we don't use that word betrothed much anymore. In fact, I don't know anybody who uses it. It's a word perhaps more common in cultures with arranged marriages. In those cultures, it's the responsibilities of parents to find a spouse for their children and to enter into a kind of contract for their future wedding. And that whole process of, of finding and arranging a marriage and, and, and sort of the, the time between the arrangement of that marriage, that intent to marriage, and the, the actual marriage itself, that whole process is called betrothal. It's, it's like a proposal or an engagement where the parents are in charge. Isn't that a delightful idea? And during that betrothal period, the, the families and the couple, they have an obligation to spend that period of time preparing themselves not just for a wedding, but for a marriage. Preparing themselves, preparing those young people for the reality of marriage to one another. Now, Paul takes that imagery and he says to the Corinthian church, that's what I did with you and one husband, namely Jesus Christ. And again, if the apostolic model is the sort of template for the pastoral model, then, then pastors, as it were, are preparing the people, the bride of Christ, for their wedding with the Lord. That's what's happening here. When you gather on Sunday mornings, you're not gathering to evaluate whether or not the praise team, you know, made you particularly happy with what was sung. You're not here to gather whether or not someone, you know, did this or that. You're not here to sort of evaluate the preaching, though I invite you to. I, I love your feedback. We are here most fundamentally to ready ourselves for this marriage that we have as the bride of Christ with the bridegroom himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. This period we're living in between having been saved through faith in Christ and the return of Christ on that great day, this is the betrothal period. This is the period where we have been promised to him as his bride, and he has been promised to us as his groom, but we await the great wedding. And we are readying ourselves for that day. Now notice what Paul says. Paul says, I did this with a divine jealousy. In other words, we should feel about the children of God the way God feels about them. In other words, pastors should do this with the kind of protectiveness and love that a father has for his daughter or a mother has for her son. There is, in proclaiming, a watchman's posture. The pastor's on the wall 
watching for enemies, proclaiming danger or safety. But there is here in this betrothal a parent's posture. In the parent's betrothal, there is tenderness and caretaking and responsibility. I think most people's ideas about the pastor-people relationship is either pretty vague and uncertain, or it's focused on lesser things than this. But in the Bible, the ultimate aim of the pastor-people relationship is a kind of mature readiness for marriage with Jesus. Now, beloved, is that what we're doing? Is that what we're sort of centered on as we come back to fundamentals or basics of the Christian life? Is that what we're centered on in the pastor-people relationship? And all the things that we might do with one another, all the ways that we might serve, ultimately, are we seeking to be ready for Jesus when he comes? Are we seeking to be a bride Adorned, waiting for her groom. And anything that causes us to forget this betrothal and to forget this work of preparation, beloved, I want to suggest to you is a significant spiritual distraction. Which brings us to our final point. Pastors proclaim, pastors betroth, the people, number three, are presented. The people are presented. We see this idea of presenting in, in both of our texts this morning. So Colossians 1 verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why, Paul? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Second Corinthians says that he has betrothed them to one husband. Why? To present you as a pure bride, a, a pure virgin to Christ. So pastors have this indescribable privilege and responsibility, as we've been saying, to one day present to Jesus his bride, the church. You, the people, are a present. We, the pastors, get to give to Jesus. It's a stunning spiritual picture. It's a stunning reality. But now notice in the text, good pastors are concerned about the condition of the people that they present. Our passages point us to, to two conditions specifically, that we present them mature and we present them pure. That we present the people of God to the Son of God mature and pure. And this is where we want to spend the bulk of our time here, particularly on this maturity point. What does it mean to present everyone mature in Christ? Well, the word mature is translated with a couple of other words in the New Testament. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says there, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word perfect is the same word from which we get the word mature. Or in uh, James chapter 1, verse 4, James talks about being complete. So this notion of maturity has something to do also with a kind of completion. And sometimes, even in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, it's word, parallel word, uh, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, for example, has a notion of, of blameless. 
So when we're talking about a kind of maturity here, a spiritual maturity, it is to, to bring a person to kind of completion, to bring them to a, a kind of fulfillment, a blamelessness as they live for Christ. Now, where might we see this maturity? I want to suggest from the Bible that there are at least three places where we should be working together for a kind of maturity. I'm just choosing texts where that word is actually used, where that word maturity or perfection or completion is actually used. Three, three, three places here in the test, New Testament that have to do with this kind of fulfillment or completion. Number one, we want to see the people mature in their perspective on discipleship. Mature in their perspective on discipleship. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus is interacting with a young man who's asking spiritual questions. And he hasn't yet begun on the road of maturity as he thinks. Jesus says there in Matthew 19, verse 21, if you would be perfect, there's our word, or mature, or complete, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In other words, maturity means coming to see that Jesus is better than and worth more than all the treasures the world can offer. That maturity begins with a break from worldliness and materialism and a quest for riches and a starting with following Jesus as your true treasure, as your true goal. Maturity means a, a willingness to leave all, to forsake all in order to have Jesus. And from Jesus' perspective in Matthew 19, 21, there's no way to be perfect or mature without following him. So the pastor's main goal is to get the people to follow Jesus. No, I mean, actually follow him. Not like on Facebook, right? But for real. Not, not to post little pretty graphics on Instagram with a verse from your quiet time, but to actually get up and go out in the world and do that verse, right? To, to embrace his lordship, his rule in your life and my life by saying, nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. And to follow him in obedience that comes from faith. And beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to suggest to you, based on the authority of Jesus, that your life won't really begin until you begin to follow Jesus. Oh, I know that you're alive. I don't mean to insult you. You're not dead. And I, don't mean, I know that you're alive. You have an earthly life. There are things that you care about. There are passions that you have. There are things that you're really good at and that you really enjoy. All of those things in Matthew 19, 21 are kind of rolled up into Jesus saying to you, go sell all that you have give it away to others, and come follow him. And not until you see that Jesus has loved you before you loved yourself, and that he has proven his love for you by dying for your sins. He had no sins of his own. 
and that he has been raised from the grave three days later and is coming again for those who believe in him. It's not until you see that you actually need that Jesus and you need to follow that Jesus that you actually have the kind of life that can never end. The life you're sitting here with this morning, that's going to end. It's going to end for all of us. But it is not the end. There is life after this one. Either in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy forevermore or in the absence of God where there is suffering and agony forevermore. We would have you choose life, eternal life. Christ would have you choose life, eternal life. This is why he tells you, come follow him. He is the only way to this life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God except through him. So if you would really live, you must follow Jesus as your God, as your Lord, as your Savior. You must turn away from your sin. You must, in fact, declare that the whole world were it yours is nothing compared to him and follow him in faith and in love. Now, we exist to help people do that. So if you've got questions about that, see us after the service, contact us online by email or what have you. All of our contact information is on the back of your bulletin. Talk with the Christian friend that you came with this morning. But beloved, don't delay, don't procrastinate. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow's not promise. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him and you will have life, eternal life, and life to the full. And you'll be on the path to maturity from God's perspective. So we need a mature perspective of discipleship. Number two, we, we need as the people of God to, to mature in our perspective on eternity. Now that was hinted at in Matthew 19, but let's see it clearly in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 15. The Apostle Paul writing there to those Christians says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. You see how he begins? He begins by saying, listen, I ain't there yet. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love this passage. Notice, notice the flow of thought here. Mature thinking starts out by saying, I ain't arrived yet. Paul says it twice. It says it in the beginning of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. But mature thinking doesn't just sort of stop there. It says, I press toward the mark, right? I ain't arrived yet, but I'm going somewhere. Uh, you know how we say it in the old cliche, I ain't what I used to be, Right? But well, what? We, we, we're going somewhere. And then number three, mature thinking says this. I'm doing this in the end of verse 12 because Jesus has made me his own. Because Jesus has already owned me and claimed me and saved me. I'm going on. I'm pressing forward toward the prize that God has for me, toward the calling that God has for me. I'm pressing on for God himself. And Paul says, if anybody thinks now that they have reached perfection or maturity, 
actually they're being immature. I mean, ain't nobody in here more mature than the Apostle Paul. And he starts out in verse 12 saying, I ain't got it. I ain't there yet. Right? If someone gets stuck, here's the second thing. If someone gets stuck on what lies behind their past. Now, consider Paul's past. He says in Timothy that he was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. That he savagely attacked the church. He did. That was his old way of life. And Paul says here now, I got I to gotta put my past behind me. And so it is with the Christians. If we're going to mature, all of our failings, all of our faults, all of those things that have been nailed to the cross that are behind us, we, we have to seriously put them behind us so that we can press on toward what's ahead of us. History is meant to be a guidepost, not a hitching post. You don't tie yourself to it. You use it to sort of figure out where you need to go next. And this is what Paul is saying here. Mature thinkers press ahead. They forget what's behind. There's a goal. There's a prize. And it's seeing and being with Jesus in glory. Let me, let me put this another way. According to the Bible, mature thinking is a kind of active heavenly mindedness. It's an active, habitual, heavenly mindedness. So Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. So if as pastors we're going to present the people mature, it means we are presenting to God people who are looking for him, waiting for him, longing for him, have their minds stayed on him. So beloved, please don't ever resent a pastor for trying to get your mind off things below in order to get your mind on things above. He's trying to get you ready for Jesus, to get you ready for the marriage. Don't, don't, please don't resent a pastor for trying to get you to do earthly things with a heavenly mind. He's trying to free you from worldliness so, so you can present, so he can present you mature when Jesus comes. There's a variety of Christians so serious about the serious things of earth that they cease to be serious about the serious things of heaven. Don't let that form of worldliness sneak up on you. Instead, have the mind of the mature by pressing toward the mark and do the important things of this life with your mind focused on the life to come. We want to have an active, habitual, heavenly-mindedness. That's the pathway to Christian maturity. Number three, we want to mature our perspective on suffering and joy. We want to mature our perspective on discipleship. We want to mature our perspective on eternal things. We want to mature our perspective on suffering and joy. I get this from James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. You will know these words. Verse 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials or, or meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you, notice there, may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Let's see the flow of thought. Trials come, count it joy. Why? Because we know it's going to produce 
the testing of our faith and steadfastness, right? So trials in God's hand produce virtue in God's people. And then notice what the effect of that is. Steadfastness, if it's not short-circuited, if it's not cut off, if we endure in the midst of suffering with our eyes on Christ, notice what it produces. It produces maturity. It produces perfection and completion lacking in nothing. So it is suffering that God often uses to produce maturity in his people. In other words, it is suffering that God often uses along with teaching and blessing and a whole bunch of other things. It is suffering that God often uses to get us ready for the marriage, to get us ready to be the bride of Christ. And it's the pastor's job not to cause the people suffering. It's the pastor's job to help the people remember what James 1 teaches so that we rejoice in the midst of suffering, looking for the reward of steadfastness. Now, what happens if people don't remember this? Then I think often you get the, you get the soil of rocky ground. You guys remember the parable of the sower, the four types of ground? Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, describe the rocky ground for this. As for what was sown on rocky, rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Here's the key part. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There are people who have religious experiences that give them joy. And that joy will only last as long as they're not suffering. But when suffering for the word of God and persecution and tribulation come, then they're no longer happy and they no longer follow. Those are rocky, shallowly planted um, soil believers. So it's vital that the maturing process involve teaching on suffering and how to endure it with patience and faith and knowledge that God is using suffering to get us ready for heaven. Perhaps the greatest theological deficit in the Western church, in the American church, is a lack of a theology of suffering. We skip suffering and run straight to glory. But there's a pattern in the Bible. First comes suffering, then comes glory. That's the case with Joseph sold into slavery before he becomes number two in Egypt. That's the case with Moses running from Pharaoh before he delivers the people uh, from slavery in Egypt. That's the case with Jesus suffering on the cross before he is resurrected in glory. That's going to be the case for us because we are not better than our master. We are entering into both his suffering and his glory by faith. We need a theology of suffering so that we can endure suffering knowing that suffering don't last always. Then comes glory. Then comes glory. And I don't know a better comfort than this, than what the Bible is teaching us here. Nothing short of this than the hope of glory can give us joy when we're in the midst of our trials. If all we see is our trials, no wonder the heart grows sick with sorrow. But if we can see through our trials, above our trials, around our trials, and see Jesus, and see the hope of glory, and, and that have its, its work of giving us steadfastness and maturity, then even in our trials, 
we have a joy that the world can't take away because it didn't give it to us. God did. So trying to get us all to be genuine followers of Jesus, to get us all to press toward the mark, to get us all to endure suffering with, with faith and joy and hope, that, that's the recipe for maturing us so that we might present to Christ a, a mature bride when he comes. And so just by way of application, let me just ask you, uh, how, how are you doing at those three things? At number one, actually following Jesus. Is there some area of our lives where maybe even the Holy Spirit is nudging us now where we are aware of some incomplete obedience? In other words, some disobedience, right? That we need to repent of, maybe some things we need to forsake in order to follow Jesus. And will we ask for grace to do that? And number two, how are we doing at forgetting what's behind and pressing toward the mark, toward the high calling of God? What, what thoughts about our past do we need to bring and make obedient to Christ? We need to bring beneath the cross, beneath the empty tomb, beneath the finished work of Jesus so that we are freed from it and so that we reevaluate it in light of what Jesus has done for us. How are we doing at, at forgetting what's behind and pressing forward? Number three, how are we doing at counting it all joy when we suffer? And, and persevering in faith and hope. Those three questions give us a, perhaps an assessment of how we're doing at maturing in Christ. And, and if you think about it, not just individually, but you think about it for us as a church collectively, it gives us an assessment of how we're maturing as an entire body. These things marking us as a church. Well, that's the first part of presenting. We want to present the people mature to Christ. It's the second part, briefly, and we'll end on it. We also, 2 Corinthians eleven two, want to present the people pure. It's a pure bride, as a virgin bride to Christ. Now, obviously, we're back at the, at the wedding imagery, aren't we? Paul has said, I have a divine jealousy for you. I have betrothed you to one husband to present you a virgin bride to Christ. Now, I, I particularly like that imagery. Not, not because I think that we ought to give ourselves to a kind of perfectionism here. Because I think when we see imagery like a virgin bride and we imagine a, a bride dressed in white symbolizing purity, um, we, we almost instinctively go to this notion of faultlessness, of having never failed of having never slipped morally. But that, that can't be what's in view here because all of us are saved out of sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have stumbled. All of us have actively rebelled. We've done wrong when we knew it was wrong, haven't we? Haven't we? Haven't we? All of us. So what does Paul have in mind when he says, I present you as a virgin bride? Well, I think what Paul has in mind is the way in which the reality of the gospel works backwards in our lives to cover those faults, to cleanse us of those sins, 
to renew in us uh, a, a purity that we actually didn't have, that's foreign to us, that God has given to us. And so when he's talking about presenting a virgin bride, he's, he's not sort of here talking about, you know, okay, I'm going to present to Jesus the people who've kind of earned it because they didn't mess up. Well, heaven would be empty. Christ would be without a bride. So no, I'm going to present to Jesus those who have been washed by the blood, those who have been cleansed by the Lord's sacrifice, those who, yes, have known stain, have done dirt, those who have been crushed beneath their own sense of guilt. No, the gospel is going to work in such a way that it frees them from that guilt. It's what's behind that we are turning away from. The gospel is going to work in such a way that they have a righteousness that comes not from their perfection, but that comes from Jesus. They're going to be spotless because it's the life of Christ that washes over them. That's the bride, pure and radiant. And Dennis quoted it earlier in Ephesians chapter 5 when he started the service where Paul starts out talking about marriage but then sort of moves over to talking about Christ and the church. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27, the Bible says there that he's going to present to himself a radiant bride, spotless, beautiful, it's the, it's the result of knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and maturing in Jesus. Purity is the result of that. Holiness and blamelessness, spotlessness is the result of that. And that's how we show up at the wedding. Pure and radiant, like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you. Isn't that what we just sang? A hymn properly inspired by the truth of the scripture. Beloved, the entire universe is heading to a wedding and Christ's people will be dressed for it, pure and ready. And our partnership and our modeling and following, our leading and watching and submitting and soul care, uh, this whole thing it's about us arriving there, dressed this way, pure and without blemish. See, here's what I know from my own experience. That the extent to which we are preoccupied with our own moral failings, purity will seem like it's well out of reach. The more we remember our faults, particularly without remembering Jesus and the cross, the more condemned we will feel, the more helpless and hopeless we will feel. But the more we remember those things and look away, and look away to Jesus, and look away to the cross, and look away to promises of, of perfection and completion and maturity and, and purity and, and radiance and holiness and blamelessness. The more we look away to what Christ has done for us, the more and more purity seems good and right and natural to the people of God, desirable. And here, I think the Bible is just trying to raise our gaze again to help us see ourselves, to see our destiny to be this unblemished bride. The universe is headed to a wedding. And maybe the way to end this sermon is simply by referring to two other passages of Scripture at the end of the book. 
Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. There the apostle John is looking down the corridors of time. He's seeing the fulfillment of eternal things. He's anticipating the coming of Christ the King. And he says this, Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then just two chapters later, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, notice, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Beloved, if you are in Christ, this is your future. This is your autobiography written ahead of time. This is the reality you will live forever. It's the bride of Christ gathered together with God, living together with him where there is only joy because the former things have passed away. This is what we're trying to get ready for. This is what we are maturing for. This is the hope of the pastor-people relationship. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us grace to be like a bride preparing for her groom. Grant that we would be a church ready for you. Grant, O oh Lord, that all of our ministry and serving our relating, our, our conversation and fellowship, grant that it would be used by you to make us ready for that day. Lift our eyes from our struggles. Lift our eyes from our suffering. Lift our eyes, O oh Lord, from the calamity and the turmoil in the world that we might behold Jesus, glorious, sitting on a throne, coming again to gather his bride. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. Keep us, we pray. Prepare us for that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.